0: hey everyone hello happy new year you're watching the jacobin show i'm your host jen pan a quick note that this year will be airing live every wednesday at 6 p.m eastern so please tune in Uh, If you caught the show last year, first of all, welcome back. Uh, Thank you for watching again. Um, You may have noticed that there's something slightly amiss this year, namely that my usual co-hosts, Paul Prescott and Ariella Thornhill, are not here. Um, Some of you might actually know that Paul Prescott is running for office in the state of Pennsylvania. He's running for a state Senate seat. Um, we actually couldn't really talk about it when he was on the show uh, because Jacobin is, of course, a nonprofit, so we can't and don't endorse any political candidates. Um, so, you know, of course, I, I don't I would never endorse Paul Prescott, um, but I'm just reporting to you that he has already garnered a ton of uh, really good union endorsements. Uh, this is actually really unusual, I think, for a young progressive insurgent candidate. He's gotten a ton of union endorsements from uh, local, you know, large blue collar unions. So if you were a fan of Laborpol, um, that might be a campaign that you want to keep your eye on. Uh, as far as my other co-host, Ariella Thornhill, um. You know, much like Anna and Nando on The weekend's show, she has got a ton of work commitments. Some of you may know that she also has three kids, uh, so unfortunately she can't be with us every week. Um, So for the most part, this year I'll be flying solo, of course, with trusty producer Young Kale uh, in the background and occasionally on screen. Um, but I also want to mention if you are fans of Paul and Ariella, which, you know, obviously, and hopefully you should be, um, they will be making guest appearances from time to time. So definitely keep watching. So for, for today's show, as I think, you know, I will be talking to my friends, Amber Frost and Danny Bessner about, um, why the Democrats are such losers. Uh, they wrote a pretty good article, uh, a little over a year ago titled, um, are the Democrats losing on purpose? Uh, I I, I feel like in the year since, we've had quite a few examples uh, and yet more mounting evidence that the Democrats may very well be losing on purpose. So we'll be checking in with Amber and Danny a little later about what's going on there. Um, Also on the show later, I will be making a few comments of my own about um, two sort of new policies that have been enacted in New York State, One is that the Department of Health is apparently now uh, designating race as a medical risk factor when it comes to COVID. I have some things to say about that. Again, that's to come. Uh, And the other thing I'll be talking about is that Governor Kathy Hochul recently signed a bill um, directing all state agencies to disaggregate data on Asian Americans in the state. Uh, So... Again, I'll, I'll have more comments on that. I'll talk about that a little more in detail. Uh, but just as a teaser, I want to say that these two policies are sort of pro- nominally progressive, but I'm going to make the case that they may constitute racecraft. Uh, so that's to come. Uh, but for right now, I actually want to bring on our first guest. Uh, it's Ross Barkin, who you probably know as a Jacobin columnist. He also writes for The Guardian, and he's the author of the books The Prince and The Night Burns Bright, which Ross, I think, is uh, a novel that you just published. Yes?
1: Will be published February 1st. Yes. So it's in pre order pre order.
0: Pre order. So, first of all, Ross, thank you for joining us.
1: Yeah, thank you for having me. Very excited to be on again, Jacobin Show.
0: Always happy to have you. Um, As I mentioned, you are a regular reporter on New York City politics. Um, I should also mention, actually, that you have a substack where you kind of chronicle the ongoings of New York City. So I recommend that everybody checks that out and subscribe. Um, On your substack, you had recently published an article called The Power of Eric Adams. And, um, you know, I... I think it has a lot of interesting implications for even people who are outside of New York and, you know, don't don't really know that much about Eric Adams. And one of the compelling things about your article, um, at least to me, is you talk about how Eric Adams coalition kind of um, paradoxically managed to include a pretty broad base of black and Latino uh, working class voters. But then at the same time, on the other side, a lot of like wealthy, evil developers and landlords. So um, can you, now that the campaign is you know, over, Eric Adams is mayor, can you talk a little bit about how he assembled this kind of unlikely coalition?
1: Sure. So it's less unlikely than it looks. There actually you know, is, is a long history of you know, moderate Black or Latino politicians in New York City, moderate white politicians as well. Um, who draw close to the real estate industry, um, to the finance elites. You know, even Bill de Blasio himself was close to the real estate industry. What sets Adams apart, I would say, certainly from de Blasio, is the enthusiasm with with which he embraces really, you know, the wealthiest people in the city and his... more, more hesitancy around uh, tenant issues and helping tenants. I think he's very much a, a real estate and finance mayor. At the same time, because he is a black man, because he did grow up in a working class neighborhood in Queens, he does have a feel for the working class. And he, in some ways, is like Michael Bloomberg in his political orientation that I would say he's fundamentally neoliberal. But unlike Michael Bloomberg, you know, he has some real – Demographic and political strengths. Michael Bloomberg was not a Democrat. Eric Adams is very much a Democrat, close to the uh, Brooklyn Democratic Party and Queens Democratic Parties. You know, he is someone who can use identity uh, as as a weapon. You know, Michael Bloomberg was a drab white man and a Republican in a Democratic city. Eric Adams is not that, so he has a lot going for him. He, he's a talented politician. He's a sometimes a strange politician, and I say for the left. Broadly and certainly for socialists and, and for progressives, he is a very canny, wily, and potentially um, very strong opponent. If indeed he comes against them, or they seek to move him on certain policy issues and goals.
0: So, talk a little bit more—a little bit more about how he kind of utilizes his identity, because that's something that you've you, you've sort of um, broken down in the past, and I think it's really interesting because, in a way, it's. I would say that it's different from how, you know, progressive NGO types are used to talking about identity. Uh, But at the same time, he uses it quite effectively. So give some examples and and talk about why that is so useful in in terms of defanging left attacks.
1: Eric Adams is really interesting because he's simultaneously an (laughs) anti-woke democratic mayor and someone who is very adept at using woke rhetoric when it suits him. And so anti-woke in the sense that he campaigned very explicitly on being against the defund the police movement. His, His almost entire campaign was oriented around cracking down on crime, on being tough on criminals. You know, he's a former police captain, and this was very central to the campaign to the point where there were really no serious or memorable policy proposals. It was very much about, I will get the city under control. Very classic sort of, um, campaign that would have been run by a white moderate not too long ago at the same time he is someone who when it suits him will invoke identity to try to shut down his opponents i use an example during the campaign where i asked him very explicitly would he support you know stronger um, tenant laws and rent stabilization would he appoint more tenant-friendly members to something called the Rent Guidelines Board, which sets rent for the many rent-stabilized apartments in New York City? And he gave a, a very disingenuous but fascinating answer where he talked about, well, there are a lot of Black homeowners who may be hurt by rent stabilization, hmm. who need to m- pay their mortgages. you know. And he invoked some you know, mythical person who if rent stabilization were to be strengthened in some way, they could fall behind their mortgage and lose their home. And it was, it was completely disingenuous because most apartments in New York city are owned by these massive real estate companies. Uh, the, 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 even the small landlords, so-called small landlords are owning multiple apartment buildings. Mm-hmm. But again, he talked very explicitly about his black identity to shut down a discussion about rent stabilization and, and, rent control. Very recently, he defended hiring his own brother for a very high paying job with the NYPD by saying he has to defend himself from white supremacy. And of course, who talks about white supremacy? Well, we know the NGO class is always talking about white supremacy, Robin D'Angelo, Ibram Kendi, right? There's an entire uh, industry dedicated to rooting out white supremacy. And of course, America is very much a racist country in many ways, but we know that there are also a lot of hucksters out there who are looking to make a, a lot of money off of that. So my, my point is, in general, is he's, he's a very difficult person to get a handle on. I think he does pose a lot of challenges for the left because he knows how to pivot very well. He knows how to use their rhetoric very well against them. In some ways, I view him as a more adept and uh, more nimble Lori Lightfoot. Hmm. Uh, who is the mayor of of Mm -hmm. Chicago and also uses identity. I think Adams is a stronger, cannier version of her with a much more stable coalition behind him.
0: I I wanna um, pause on his rhetoric for a minute because something else that you recently wrote about was uh, this this sort of gaffe that he made recently where he referred to low-wage workers as, or frontline workers as uh, low-skilled. And this, we actually have a video of this, so um, maybe let's take a watch first and then I'll get your thoughts.
2: If my
3: businesses are sharing with their employees, you are part of the ecosystem of this city. My low-skilled workers, my cooks, my dishwashers, my messengers, my shoe shine people—those who work in Dunkin' Donuts—they cannot. They don't have the academic skills to sit in a corner office. They need this. We are in this together.
0: So, uh, as I was saying, this comment really set off a firestorm among progressive commentators. Uh, You have, you know, uh, progressives, uh, progressive politicians in the state of New York, you know, going after Eric Adams now saying that this is a very insulting way to refer to service workers. They're low wage workers. You know, uh, uh, every worker is a skilled worker. And, you know, there's part of me that, very much understands that critique. But I think that something interesting that you pointed out is that um, it wasn't really an effective way of countering what he was saying. And so so talk a little bit about what Eric Adams said there and why you don't think it was really the misstep that some people thought it was.
1: So would I, if I were a politician, talked about, would I talk about workers in, the, in, in that way? And the answer is no, I, I would not. But the trouble is the point Adams was making was ultimately a valid one. If I also would argue he misses the bigger point about low wage work. So what he was saying, quite frankly, was the economically depressed midtown and downtown corridors that are lacking both tourist foot traffic and lacking in white collar workers who are still working remotely, these areas are very dependent on white collar professionals who patronize them because it's the low wage workers, you know, it's your dishwashers, it's your cooks, it's your cashiers. These are the people who are able to make a living because their businesses are being patronized by this upper middle class, this office class that, you know, for many decades is what supported these areas. And as we know with covid remote work has taken off. There's a lot of companies who are very reluctant, rightfully so, to not bring their workers back full-time. So what Adams is saying is it's time for these corporations to bring their workers back so dishwashers and cooks and all these various blue-collar workers can then make a better living. Because while New York City itself is doing fine, these classic business districts are undoubtedly struggling. And I agree with the critics of Eric Adams that he did not phrase this very well. And also he should talk about getting these workers into unions, getting them better wages. That should be the discussion, right? I agree with that 100%. But again, you, you saw what happened. And, and this is why I warned the left about Eric Adams last year. AOC came at him on Twitter. She, she did her, her usual playbook, which is, quote, tweet, tweet start, you know, start something of a firestorm, you know, a, a rightful firestorm in some ways, but it didn't work. Mm-hmm. Eric Adams stood his ground. He said, well, you're not, don't be the word police. I, <laughs> I was a dishwasher.
2: Mm-hmm. I,
1: was, I, I worked in a restaurant. I know what it's like. And he grew up in South Jamaica, Queens, which is very much a working class black area. AOC grew up in Westchester, middle class. I grew up middle class too. There's nothing wrong with growing up middle class but you saw, you know, in some ways, a a clash of the professional class, um, you know, progressive world against the Adams working class world. And there are working class people who would not disagree with Eric Adams and would hear his words and go, well, yeah, you know, he's kind of right, or they wouldn't even make the distinction between low skill and low wage, right? So Mm. I do think he's going to be very adept at repelling these attacks. And AOC, for one, can't treat him like you would a Ted Cruz, where you get on Twitter, you get into a flame war, and then you walk away victorious and you go fundraise off of it. Very different story here. He's the mayor of New York City. He's a Democrat. He's Black. He has working class pedigree. you got to come at, him, come at him differently, particularly if you want to oppose him on policy. And it's not going to be so simple. And I think mm-hmm. this first little controversy showed that
0: so i think then you know the the final question for you to just kind of tie everything together is um what can the left do when it comes to eric adams because i think a theme of your reporting on eric adams has been uh that in so many ways he is like almost invincible to left attacks right so what should the left do uh for the next four years in new york if we really don't have any influence over the mayor
1: So I don't want to say he's invincible. I mean, no one's invincible. And and being mayor of New York City is a very high stress job and inevitably press cycles turn against you. So I think the left is much stronger in New York than it used to be and is very adept at using the media in in, in ways it it, it wasn't always, you know, five or six years ago. I think someone like AOC should re-engage on New York City issues a lot more and not just parachute in for these little kind of controversies. I think she's very much a national politician. That's great. Um, but, you know, people like her can really use their leverage more on particular issues, certainly uh, around tenant issues. You know, I look toward the rent guidelines Board, putting pressure on Eric Adams who appoint tenant friendly members. Now, the the good news for the left, too, which used to be the bad news for the left, is that the state has a lot of power over New York City. And that used to be bad news because Republicans control the state Senate. No longer true. Now you have many progressives and even socialists in the state legislature. Two DSA members are in the state Senate. Several more are in the state assembly. And you can work around Eric Adams. You can pass laws in the state legislature. You can force them to the desk of Governor Kathy Hochul, who is not the centrist that Andrew Cuomo was, and she's more amenable. And you can pass laws and do a lot without his input at all. So I think on one hand, focusing on state issues will be very important because the state has a lot of power over New York City. And I think for the city council, it's about keeping the progressive and socialist block organized there, you know, really coming together, being united around votes, putting pressure, you know, if you combine the progressive and socialist lawmakers, you have a pretty sizable plurality or something close to plurality in the New York city council. So there is a lot of room to work with on, on bills and on policy. I I think just the thing to keep in mind is, and I think most people are aware of this. You can't just follow the, social media playbook or follow the playbook of let's try to catch eric adams in a gaffe right it almost reminds you of trump oh we're going to get him this time (laughs) right Mm -hmm. it doesn't really work and it it didn't work on trump it's not going to work on eric adams especially when you you try to attack him on issues where if you really break it down it, it wasn't so damning or controversial, right? The point Mm -hmm. he was making. And and I also think you have to be very judicious about the issues you take on, really focus on policy, stay organized and stay together too. you know, stay, stay united, especially uh, if he tries to make life difficult for the left, which he might, He, he hasn't so much yet, but it's early.
0: All right, again, Ross Barkin is a Jacobin columnist. Uh, he also has a Substack stack at uh, Ross Barkin. Uh, so definitely check that out, subscribe. And Ross, thank you so much for joining us. We'll see you again.
1: Yeah, thank you for having me.
0: All right. So, uh, as I mentioned, I will be making a few comments later down the line, uh, again, about some New York related things. We're also going to have Amber Frost and Danny Bessner on in just a little bit. Um, but first, we actually have a message from our sponsor, Verso Books. Here to yep. deliver that, young Kale.
2: <laughs> yeah, we got to pay the bills, folks. So, uh, you guys should all join the Verso Book Club and get every new ebook that Verso publishes every month, as well as one to three books in the mail. All Verso Book Club members also get 50% off everything on the website. If you join the Comrade tier in January, you're going to get these four books. uh, Coronavirus, uh, Criminals, and Pandemic Profiteers, Accountability for Those Who Caused the Crisis by John Nichols. You'll also get uh, Britain's Empire, Resistance, Repression, and Revolt by Richard Gott, A History of the Foundation of the British Empire and the Forgotten History of Resistance to its Formation. Uh, You'll also get Culture and Politics, Class Writing and Socialism by Raymond Williams, a new collection of essays from one of the founders of cultural studies. And finally, uh, Imperium, Structures and Affects of Political Bodies by Frederick Lordon, an exploration of political forms drawing on Spinoza's political philosophy. So what else? What Looks else? pretty good. You want? Yeah.
0: Sorry, what was the what's the monthly fee for the Verso Books Club?
2: It's a good question. Uh, and you can find out by becoming a member. Becoming of, a member.
0: um, I Yeah, I can't remember what it is off the top of my I head. I think it's but $5 it's...
2: a month. Okay. Uh, receive access to every new ebook, $10 a month. Uh, and you will get every new ebook that, we pub- that Versa publishes as well as uh, their monthly book club selection. So it's a good deal. Good deals.
0: All right. So as I had mentioned before, um, I actually wasn't planning on making this a super New York heavy episode. Uh, Of course, we just had Ross on. um, But it just so happens that there were a few uh, interesting developments, I think, in the state of New York that caught my attention that I think could very well have implications for the rest of the country. So I will go through those. So at the end of last year, New York State enacted two new policies on race that were theoretically progressive, but potentially counterproductive. The first is that New York is now treating race as a medical risk factor when it comes to determining who's eligible for new COVID antiviral treatments, which are currently still in limited supply. A December 27th memo from the New York State Department of Health instructed healthcare providers in the state to prioritize patients for antiviral treatments based, of course, on the usual factors, such as testing positive for COVID, exhibiting symptoms, and or having a medical condition that increases the risk for severe illness or hospitalization. However, the memo also added, quote, non-white race or Hispanic slash Latino ethnicity should be considered a risk factor as longstanding systemic health and social inequities have contributed to an increased risk of severe illness and death from COVID-19. So naturally, when right-wing outlets got wind of this new race-based criteria, they had a field day. The New York Post has covered the Department of Health directive multiple times over the past few weeks, including publishing an editorial titled Racial medical care is careless and racist. Likewise, Fox commentator Carol Markowitz tweeted, quote, New York State Department of Health warns they don't have enough Paxlovid or monoclonal antibody treatment and white people need not apply. And then, of course, Tucker Carlson was also on the case.
4: This is not health care. It's punishment. It's punishment meted out on the basis of skin color. Now, the justification for all of this, and the authorities could not be clearer about it. They've taken their ideas directly from America's colleges. They'll tell you why they're doing this. The justification is history. The United States has mistreated racial minorities in centuries past, they say. Therefore, whites must suffer now. So your ancestors did bad things, or people who looked like your ancestors did bad things. So now we're withholding medicine from you. They call this equity. It's not equity. It is collective punishment. It's the North Korean standard. It's the definition of evil.
0: Now, pissing off the right would obviously be well worth it had we actually been able to implement some kind of substantive healthcare reform at the state level, say, a single payer healthcare system. But in this case, it's a shame that the right seems to have the monopoly on criticizing this recent Department of Health memo, because there's literally no upside to New York's designation of race as a medical risk factor, and no one should defend it. Yes, we know that racial disparities in COVID infection and death rates have existed since the start of the pandemic. But let's be clear, treating race itself as a medical risk factor, even in the service of anti-racism or trying to ameliorate racial disparities, is not only a potential legal quagmire, but also essentially constitutes what the historians Barbara and Karen Fields call racecraft. In the context of COVID disparities, race is largely a proxy for poverty, socioeconomic status, and the segmentation of the labor market. For instance, we know that Blacks, Latinos, and Native Americans have been more likely likely to contract COVID and require hospitalization, not because of some special racial DNA, but because people in these groups are more likely to be frontline and or low wage workers, more likely to live in low-income neighborhoods, and of course, more likely to have grown up poor. We also know that living in poverty makes people more likely to have certain health conditions that make them vulnerable to COVID, such as high blood pressure, heart issues, and diabetes. So the problem is that when you use race as a shorthand for all of the above, as liberals have sadly done since the start of the pandemic, you start to perform racecraft. Racecraft, as Barbara and Karen Fields define it, is a sleight of hand that A, reinscribes race as a natural and self-evident category, and B, obscures class. I've discussed this on the show in the past, but I think it's worth repeating here. One striking example the fields use to illustrate how the process of racecraft works pertains to racial health disparities, much like the discussion we're now having around COVID. As the fields have written in the early 2000s, a group of researchers looked at rates of asthma among kids living in the South Bronx. So this neighborhood, which is one of the poorest parts of New York, is incredibly polluted as a result of heavy truck traffic, the presence of a sewage treatment plant and several waste transfer stations, and its close proximity to several highways. Given all of that, it's probably not much of a surprise that researchers found that as a result of the unhealthy levels of air pollution in this low-income neighborhood, kids in the Bronx had very high rates of asthma. As the fields have put it, it would seem clear as noonday that class inequality had imposed sickness on these American school children. However, when the results of this study were covered by the New York Times, they were written up like this, quote, Dr. A. Hal Strelnick said the borough's high rates of asthma stemmed from a high concentration of traffic in a densely populated area, poorly maintained housing in impoverished neighborhoods, a lack of access to medical care, And a large population of Blacks and Hispanics, two groups with high rates of asthma. So the last line of the summary, which says that asthma rates are high in the Bronx because Black and Hispanic people live there, transforms asthma from something that you get because of your external surroundings into something that you have because of your race. This This is exactly the obfuscation that the New York Department of Health has performed by saying that race is a medical risk factor for COVID, even if their intentions may have been noble. An affluent Black or Latino person who's young and in good health and able to work remotely is nowhere near as susceptible to COVID as an older, low-wage service worker with hypertension and asthma, regardless of whether that older worker is Black, Latino, or yes, even White. To suggest otherwise is not only unnecessary catnip for the right, as we've already seen, but also papers over the fact that many of the real medical risk factors for COVID are the result of class inequality. And as it happens, the Department of Health's new designation of race as a medical condition is not the only recent example of state-level so-called progressive racecraft. At the end of last year, New York Governor Kathy Hochul signed a bill requiring state agencies to disaggregate data on different Asian ethnic groups in the state. Anita Gandana, a director of the Coalition for Asian American Children and Families, told NBC News, quote, This is groundbreaking. We started with this need for better data on our communities because so many of our community members have been struggling in silence. So data disaggregation has been a policy goal of progressive Asian advocacy organizations across the U.S. for a while now. These groups have been pushing to pass these types of bills in several states with large Asian populations. Why are they so interested in this data? Let's look at one standard explanation. Another shortcoming is the way statistics get aggregated under the broad term Asian-American. Let's take a look at a very common stereotype, that all Asians are crazy rich.
1: The crazy rich Asian stereotype makes me feel really broke.
3: I can say with a complete authority that the crazy rich Asian stereotype has never really applied to my ex- lived experience. Myself, as a Pacific Islander, feel like I am wealthy in spiritual, in the spiritual sense, though, which, you know, that's special unto itself. On paper, it seems like we're doing pretty well economically.
4: But when you expand on that data, you'll see that the wealth is concentrated among select racial groups, mainly Indian, Filipino, Chinese, and Japanese Americans. And when you look at the other end of the spectrum, you'll find Burmese, other Southeast Asian, and Pacific Islander communities.
1: It's important to disaggregate data because we are deemed insignificant, and we are deemed too small to be a community on our own. Um, as Native Hawaiians and Pacific Islanders, um, or NHPI.
2: Lao Americans, uh, majority of them who came to the U.S. are refugees. And it is the impact of American engagement in Vietnam that brought me here to this country. What the data
3: hides is the fact that many Southeast Asians arrived in the U.S. as refugees. It also hides the fact that the Pacific Islands, like Guam, the Mariana
0: Islands, and Samoa, are still territories of the U.S., which function like
2: colonies.
0: So I'll admit that I, too, used to be a supporter of data disaggregation. And I still think on the whole, yes, it's probably better to err on the side of more data rather than less. But I also think it's important to look at why, at best, this disaggregation is not the brilliant fix that so many liberals think it is, and why at worst it sometimes functions as another low-grade variant of racecraft. It's true that when you break down income and wealth by different Asian ethnic groups, there are some pretty stark disparities as we just saw in the last video. But let's look at some of the policy solutions favored by the proponents of data disaggregation. Here's one example offered by an article in the Brown University Political Review. Quote, despite the fact that only 14% of AAPI lack health insurance, this statistic can be disaggregated down to 8% of Japanese Americans and 27% of Korean Americans lacking insurance. Without this information, it would have been difficult to argue for a campaign to increase rates of insurance among AAPI. With this information, policymakers would have the data they need to argue for a targeted campaign aimed at Korean Americans. So, okay, sure, fair enough. Lumping all Asian ethnic groups into the same bucket hides a number of disparities. But the policy solution offered here, as the result of this so called better data, is, I think, pretty instructive. Let's put it this way when it comes to healthcare in America, do we really need a targeted campaign aimed at increasing health insurance for Korean Americans by a few percentage points? Perhaps what we actually need is to overhaul our incredibly broken healthcare system for literally every single person in the U.S., preferably through Medicare for All. Likewise, do we really need to close the median income and wealth gap between, say, Indian Americans and Burmese Americans, or do we need to close the income and wealth gap between the billionaire class and everyone else? I'll bring up just one other example of the limitations of so-called data disaggregation. Proponents of data disaggregation often point to the Chinese as an example of a high-income, successful Asian ethnic group whose good-on-paper statistics end up overshadowing other Asian ethnic groups. Well, as it turns out, in New York City, a sobering 45% of Chinese residents earn an income that's 200% below the poverty line. Of course... New York City is also home to plenty of Chinese millionaires, including, to name just one, the designer Vera Wang, whose net worth clocks in at $500 million, according to Forbes. In other words, there are also obviously massive economic disparities within Asian ethnic groups and not just between them. Just ask the low-wage Chinese workers at the New York institution Jing Fong, whose wages were routinely stolen in the 90s by their restaurant bosses, who were also, you guessed it, Chinese. Or ask the Chinese home care aides who were forced by the social services provider, the Chinese American Planning Council, to work 24-hour shifts for poverty wages. So you see the problem here. Asian data disaggregation can give us some very limited information on trends by ethnicity, but has nothing to say whatsoever about class or economic inequality. The point here, of course, is not that data disaggregation is a bad thing in and of itself, but as a tool for crafting public policy, which is what it's intended to be according to its supporters, data disaggregation begins to look very much like an avenue to nothing more than skimpy technocratic tinkering. Just like saying that race is a medical risk factor, it's also a lazy shorthand for talking around the economic forces that create poverty, poor health and bad jobs instead of addressing these economic conditions directly. Or to put it more bluntly, it's just another way for liberals to talk about anything but class. So I'm sure we'll see more of these types of policies uh, in blue states in, you know, the weeks, months and years to come. Uh, I'm sure I'll also have more to say about it when it all happens. Uh, But it's now the moment you've been waiting for. I think that we have L.A. friends, Amber Frost and Danny Bessner here with us. Uh, Let's go ahead and bring them on. Guys, Happy New Year. Good to see you. Likewise.
4: Happy New Year. Happy
0: New Year. You were behind the scenes listening to my spiel on, like, Asian Americans, so apologies in advance, that. <laughs>
4: <laughs> no, no, it was great. I was just saying to Amber how good it, how good it was, I'm like, right on.
3: I wish I could have heard the um, thing you piped through the PVS thing. I found it really <laughs> funny when it, AAPI became a thing, and I was like, was that, why... Our Tongans, the I don't know why that's a category. It's already too big a category. Now we're just throwing in more
0: people. I just want you to know that additional letters have been added. Uh, it's now A-A, I think, N-H for Native Hawaiian P-I. But anyway, that's a longer conversation for a different time. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So All right. To, the, to the matter at hand, um, the reason why I wanted to have you guys on, of course, is because you know, uh, more than a year ago, you wrote what I thought was quite a prescient article called Are the Democrats Losing on Purpose? Um, I was saying <laughs> earlier on the show before you before you guys came on that, of course, we have, you know, a wealth of evidence at this point that The Democrats may very well be losing on purpose Uh, just in the first year of the Biden administration. um, You know, the Democrats have notably failed to get build back better across the line. Uh, And in last year's elections, Democrats took a beating in like several states. Uh, So so I guess just to start, um, why are the Democrats prone to losing?
4: I started to do. Go for it. Um, Well, I think what we were trying to get to in the article and then we could go from there is just the idea that there's this entire political economic structure of the consulting class, the Democratic Party consulting class. The people who might be listening to this or watching it might receive frantic emails from them at three in the morning begging them uh, to give some money to make sure that X or Y candidate wins the election. And, And it seems to be that this structure is never really changed that, you know, you can kind of fail upwards, you can move within it, you can go from campaign to campaign. And so as, essentially, the, there's no incentive for this consulting class to actually produce winning candidates. And in fact, it, it doesn't really matter. Or in some sense, it actually um, may, might make it worthwhile to them for their candidate to lose because then they are able to, you know, increasingly paint the whatever Republican uh, politician who, who may may or may not be ghastly and ghoulish uh, as sort of an existential threat. So what we're trying to do there was highlight the important role of this consultant class in the Democratic Party structure and a, a really important part of it.
3: And I think the sort of, you know, paired lesson of that is that there is really no incentive to win, whether they're losing or winning. On purpose, so it creates this complete disconnect from the project of voting, which is supposed to be our say in democracy, allegedly, and any kind of results or accountability whatsoever. Um, I wanted to <clears throat> read something I found on some tweet recently because uh, uh, the Biden Harris ticket left their uh, campaign their campaign promises, promises up. Oops. So uh, fix Trump's testing. There's a little overlap with the code here. It's a little hard to read. It's jumbled, but um, all Americans have access to regular, reliable, and free testing. The first bullet point, double the number of drive through testing sites. Second, invest in next-generation testing, including at-home tests and instant tests. We can scale up our testing capacity. All right. You can argue that that's maybe happened in a few places set up a pandemic testing board like roosevelt's war production board it's how we produce tanks planes uniforms and supplies in record time and it's how we can produce and distribute tens of millions of tests and then establish a u.s public health jobs corps to mobilize at least a hundred thousand americans across the country with support from trusted local organizations in communities at most risk. I mean, that might be part of the issue is that there's no trusted local organizations um, to perform culturally competent mm, little my whistle there, <laughs> approaches to uh, contact tracing and protecting at risk populations. Together, we can make Donald Trump a one term president and, re- and defeat Republicans across the country. So, not only do they clearly not have to do anything they say,
1: mm-hmm.
3: they have. No reason to win anyway. Like it's just there's there's uh it's completely removed from any kind of like actual like tit for tad. Yeah, democratic process. whatever, you know. And I
4: think this is broadly indicative of the larger power structure of American society to bring back a term from the 1950s. Throughout, you know, the state, both places like um the Department of Defense, Interior, whatever, the official state. As well as all these think tanks and NGOs, which form a type of complex to this consultant class, we have a bunch of people essentially making promises that they never, they never fulfill having with nothing ever happening to them. And there's lots of reasons for this. And obviously capital is, is a very crucial one. And we just thought that this was indicative of this larger phenomenon in the American state and society.
3: And I think there is some evidence at this point, even with leaks, that they're just like this, this. Race is worth sacrificing. Mm-hmm. So who they whoever they put on the ballot was never really intended to win. Sometimes clearly, you right. know, not with the person who's running knowledge. They do, they do kind of they find a patsy every once in a while,
4: right? And and they run these these ridiculous races, but you know it. it People might say they're incompetent, but if this, the, the competence is in something else and not winning elections, but, you know, keeping this structure going and making money and moving in and out of it as a campaign manager and then going to a consultancy and, you know, sort of moving within this network, then they're actually quite competent and they're doing it quite well and they're taking a lot of people's money.
3: And giving their children jobs. And giving, and yeah. And this <laughs> Love also to the the the, that exists in America. Right?
4: The, the reproduction <laughs> of meritocracy. <laughs> right.
0: Yeah, I mean, you, so, you know, part of your argument also is that, you know, ultimately it doesn't actually matter if the Dems are like actively trying to lose or if they're just so incompetent that they're losing anyway. Um, the salient thing is that just that they're losers, right? And what that means is, right. of course, <laughs> like, of course, you know, that means that they're not actually going to be able to pass any kind of policy that would make life less miserable for the majority of working people in the U S. Um, but I think another, uh, kind of aspect of just perpetual loserdom is that, um, and I think you say this in your article, like no one likes a loser, right? So it's like the people Mm. who aren't engaged in politics already, uh, aren't going to feel like they want to vote for Democrats.
4: Right. Yeah, the party appears both feckless and sclerotic, mm-hmm. which is a difficult thing to do, but that the Democrats right. are, are, are nonetheless are, are nonetheless able to do. Um, and I think that you, these sorts of images do matter in popular politics, particularly if one of the, the, the things that the left needs to rely on, if it is to ever have you know, a meaningful power in the society, is to, to win over non-voters. You, you just never want to appear weak. You never want to appear incapable of actually accomplishing anything. You never want to appear like a liar, that you're just lying to people to make money. And the Democratic Party is increasingly appearing um, like this. And and plus that with the news coverage of the elites like Nancy Pelosi Mm -hmm. and the various (laughs) stock issues relating to her. And you just have a recipe for electoral disaster.
0: I
3: mean, I kind of wonder also how much of it might be conscious because the losses, the You know, this emotional kind of uh, roller coaster they put through, like their their donor class through, where they're like, oh no, the world is ending. And then they also will send a, oh God, we (laughs) failed. I'm so sorry, I'm on my knees. It was a friend, that's why you need to give more and more. And it's like the loss itself is a reason to, there's no reason to stop
4: donating. (laughs) Mm
3: -hmm. It's like, well, it's because people didn't donate enough hmm um and then also i kind of wonder if it has to do with like the liberal mindset of like well actually everyone loves a loser like they because that's why they think they care about the poor is because they're um you know wretched and benighted and, and not right. because they're human beings and they have a broad objection to uh you know a society that lacks any sort of equality right. but because they're like oh we feel bad for them and i think the they have that same mindset for themselves. They're like, if we lose a lot, maybe they'll feel bad for us.
4: Right. And, and we, we can
3: squeeze a little more money.
4: That's precisely right. And that's a really, that's so smart, Amber, because that's such a really, <laughs> obviously, that's a really deep strain in liberal thought, The notion that worldly suffering is indicative of a form of high morals. Mm. So there's something uh, in that. And that is going back to you know the beginning of liberalism in the late 18th century. And this has been. True for the last 200 years. So it's it's a really core element of what it means to be a liberal. In some sense, it's to suffer. um, And that has very strong connections to sort of a secularizing Protestantism, which we don't have to get into now. But it's a really um, core element that you see in those sorts of desperate emails, which no one likes to receive. I can't imagine they're even that effective. But nonetheless, give a presence of this class.
3: I think they're effective exactly to the sort of people who would donate even if they weren't so... Wretched in their presentation. <laughs> right. But like
4: normal people, I think, are
3: really disgusted
0: by it.
4: Right, right. It's yeah, not going to you- win over any adherence.
0: Do you guys have recent examples of like some of those pathetic emails? Because you listed some really good ones in um, in your original article. And I only imagine that the Democrats have groveled even harder since then. Uh, but I have to admit that I unsubscribed to a lot of lists that I was on just because it was so painful to like, I don't know, just like see just that abject like moaning and groaning in the inbox. I still yeah. I still get Bernie's emails of course and his aren't like that as we all know um, but anyway any any yeah. new examples that you, that you found
4: Well Pelosi kept it up for a while I only mm. recently got off of Pelosi's list and it was also like very abject and very you know begging uh for money and very like 10 seconds to midnight situation in <laughs> a lot of those emails but I unsubscribed recently Uh
3: the my new favorite is from this by Maxwell Alejandro Frost, no relation. Mm. Um, brother, brother. And he loves he, there was one he sent and the subject line was uh I've been arrested. <laughs> that's just like it. And Help. Like, <laughs> I guess he was at a protest. I saw what he was getting, and I'm like, so it was, like half my family. None <laughs> of them are qualified to run for office. Was just this, like, this is what this um, is my one email he wasn't from at jail. jail. Yeah, yeah. It's it's it wasn't even I'm pathetic. It was like uh, look, my entire bona fides or have you say that word is uh based on the fact that I have been arrested, which mm-hmm. doesn't work on me at all because I remember working for a WFP, and you you there was an activist class that would stage arrests. Mm-hmm. We would we would get like days essentially off of canvassing to go witness this so that the crowd was there. So that when the cameramen were there, they would take a picture of someone's just planned arrest. It was was PR. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, well, there are arrests and then there are arrests. And also your subject line is real. Just, I've been arrested.
0: Yeah. I think, I think on the subject of like PR and media, um, you know, We've been mostly talking about politicians, but I absolutely think that, you know, MSNBC liberals and other sort of Democratic commentators are part of this general constellation of loserdom. Right. And something I've been thinking about is, you know, after the 2021 election in Virginia, where Democrats lost the governor's seat, uh, they, you, you guys probably remember there was just like a spate of liberal commentary where all of these you know, Democratic Party elites were like, the problem was white supremacy. The voters were too white supremacist. And this is why they lost. And that just seems like such a loserish explanation to me. And, you know, I should also say that now that we've seen Latino and Asian American voters also moving away, particularly working class Latino and Asian American voters also moving away from the Democratic Party, you're starting to see those commentators repeat some of the same messages. Like I read a like full length feature article about why Latinos in Texas had shifted to Trump, which admittedly is a really interesting political phenomenon. Right. But the commentators explanation was they think they're white. And to me, it's just like, why, why are you defaulting to this analysis, which won't help you win any elections? It's just a way to be sanctimonious and to shift the blame onto the voters. Um, So what do you guys think about, you know, how, how, how this uh, class of commentators figures into the democratic aptitude for losing?
3: So I actually, I'm, I'm very, in terms of the heart, cart, horse thing. I think the bourgeois press are running dogs. I don't think they really actually um, affect people's um, certainly not as much as they think they do affect Agreed. people's sort of perspective or opinions on the world. I think a lot of people are sort of idiosyncratic and sort of you know pull from different things that they think clarify their political conditions or the the state of uh, U.S. politics. But I still think most of it comes from their you know, lived experience and not in a, you know, liberal arts school way, but just like, well, I, I know what happened to me. I know how much I get paid. I know what the houses cost around me. Um, you know, that that's, I think, what forms the primary sort of basis for politics. How that gets shaped and how that gets packaged in terms of voting options, I think is sort of, you know, up, up to the... Uh, Up to the pundit class. I don't know what you call them, but like the the mainstream media. Mm -hmm. Um, But I don't, I mean, okay. More black people uh, watch Fox News than read the New York Times, statistically. Um, They're not all voting Republican. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, I think people are actually more critical consumers of media than we give them uh, credit for. So there's part of that, but also... Again, the people who really consume this stuff tend to be people very invested in the party because they're the only people who have sort of benefited from it for a while. And I, I think the rest of America either kind of tunes them out or takes them with like a heavy dose of salt. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, they do their ability to like rationalize and the mental gymnastics of just, you know, all, all, all these voters that voted for Obama And then didn't vote for Hillary or even voted for Trump are too racist to vote for the white woman. Like, I don't even know. I mean, there's a constant question of like, are they cynical or are they stupid? And at the end of the day, it's like Democrats winning on purpose or not. It's kind of this distinction that difference
4: yeah and just and, and then what exactly what amber just said almost begs the, the strategic question if it doesn't appear empirically to win elections for example then why like jen you suggested why is this such a powerful message and i think um There's ideological and material reasons, Um, ideologically um, addressing issues of race in the way that most mainstream liberals do um, kind of sidesteps issues of class, because any general uh, addressing of an issue uh, of racial issues will necessarily involve class. But this particular permutation sort of moves your eyes away from it. And I think that's an important reason. And then sort of around that idea. Um, in the last five six years, there's been an accretion of institutions, of NGOs, of consultants who, who promote a particular message um, that that you know that will change in ten years um, into something else. It reminds me very much and in my own field of foreign policy, as people went from being Soviet experts to experts on genocide to experts on Islam, and now they're experts mm. on China. You mm. know, you sort of follow where the money takes you, and I think we see you know, it's endemic to capitalism. We see that in in various spheres of of social and political life. And this is just the latest instantiation. And in six years, it'll be something else uh, based on exogenous actual material conditions. Uh, So I think that's a a big explanation of why it continues.
3: Right. And you bring that up, but you've written about this before, and I didn't even pick up on this the first time, but it's like, when Fukuyama was writing about the end of history, what he really meant was the end of my particular discipline. Because (laughs) what he said was no longer going to be useful to capital. He was no longer going to be an expert that could be used as a, essentially a consultant or an advisor. So the end of history, the end of basically for him, the the world moving forward was he's like, Oh shit, I don't have a job anymore. This is the end. This is the end of history. You guys, no one's going to, like, hire me. Yeah.
4: yeah. And Fukuyama was a specialist on Soviet imperialism. Like, he wrote about, like, Pakistan and Afghanistan uh, and elsewhere. And so it was really, for a lot of these people, why you get that sort of existential literally They spent their years learning Russian, <laughs> so, the Soviet studies. This was a thing. And so now their world came to an end. And so uh, this is the sort of, just to bring it back to the main topic, these are the sorts of, of individual psychic elements that contribute to They have to, to find something things. to do with them. Yeah. yeah. Okay.
3: Mm-hmm. Mild aside, but you know, there was like <laughs> this really um, campy movie called Red Sparrow with j who I love. But oh yeah.
0: Doesn't like, she um, like break her leg dancing in that movie? Yeah. Yeah. yeah she yeah. <laughs> is like a cow. Um,
3: But gorgeous. Love her. But uh, so. Looks great. Looks great breaking book. her leg. <laughs>
0: yeah.
3: <laughs> that book. Uh, that's based on, it's written by an ex-CIA guy who Hmm. studied the Soviet Union. And you're watching this movie and it's fun and it's campy and it's J-Log, we all love her and you sent me to horror school. It's like an (laughs) all-time line. But it's like, oh, this is a series of books written by a guy whose specialization was the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union stopped existing. He didn't have anything to do. So he wrote a series of like, uh, tawdry, like, spy books, Um, like, total absurd fiction about a sexy ballerina, super spy lady, um, that that is set in post-Soviet Russia, so it doesn't even make sense, like, that's like, none of the, that's not, you don't have the John le fun of, like, fighting another real world power. It's just, um, it's, a, it's an obsolescence that they never see coming. And mm. I wish more of them would um, become tawdry fiction writers instead of <laughs> right, whatever right. the fuck Fukuyama does now. But it's amazing. They have this existential crisis and do something productive. Go back to creative writing.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, for me, it seems like the most irritating and insidious thing about the relationship between the you know, so-called liberal media and the Democrats is that uh, I, you know, I obviously agree that the your you know average person isn't really taking the media that seriously or like not really watching that carefully or you know is definitely not letting the media guide their political behavior. But the Democratic party elite is watching the media. And so I feel like, you know, what happens is that, uh, you know, on MSNBC, they'll be like, the voters are so white supremacist. And then the Democrats will be like, thus, we must say BIPOC, you know? And so, and and then that just like leads to, I guess, a vicious cycle of losing where the Democrats keep losing. And then that just gives the media more fodder to be like, it was white supremacy. It was white supremacy. Yeah, no, I definitely think, yeah, that's, yeah. That's pretty much the cycle of it. Uh, well, okay. I so I, I, I do that... want to ask you guys now about uh, uh, an- another recent instance of, you know, media spectacle and um, democratic loserdom, which is the anniversary of the Capitol riots. Because uh, you guys had written about the Capitol riots. When was
4: um... that
0: again? January 6th. January... <laughs> Amber, <laughs> we're now saying January 6th as though it's like 9-11. So... Yes, I know!
4: I, by the way, Hello,
0: yeah. we did like a, like a, we're doing like a
3: mini poll of like, who, like, do you really capitalize? What day was that? And they're like, I know it was at the beginning of the year. Yeah. Like, it's <laughs> shut up. We were really protecting if we think it like shook the world. Yeah. yeah.
4: I've yeah. never heard someone bring it up in my daily life. Ever. No.
0: Yeah. Mostly they were like, oh yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. That was weird. Yeah, yeah. Totally. Like, it was funny. Yeah, I mean, I actually think that we have, like, a couple of good polls at this point that that uh, sort of show that most of the American public, you know, was like, yeah, the Capitol riots were bad. Like, it's bad that Donald Trump stoked the Capitol riots. But at the same time, people really want to move on, you know? Uh, it, yeah. just, just what you said, that um, people don't see it as, people don't see that day as this just like, you know, dark smear on American democracy because they interpret the Capitol riots, as I think we all do, we all, we on the screen all do, as a like glorified sports riot, kind of like a, yeah. Donald, a Donald Trump rally that like went too far. And uh, I, I mean, Okay, so we'll, we'll we'll get into the details of that in a little bit, but um, I did you guys see the big Democratic pomp and circumstance like commemoration of the Capitol riots where Nancy Pelosi introduced the cast of Hamilton in order to? I'm not sure. No, I,
3: I, I read a little bit
0: of the um
3: of the like transcripts from it, but uh, in FT, but I'm like I don't want to see. Yeah. These people talking about this. Like, they're probably all going to cry and hold hands. Like, yeah. Hamilton, my God. That's, that's not just lame. That's passe. Yeah. Lame. It's like,
4: it's old. It's like, it's like, it's not cool anymore to even insult Hamilton, which yeah. it's like. So yeah, I actually did. Uh, I listened to it. because uh, I wanted to see what it was like. It was, uh, he played Dear Theodosia, I believe. Uh, but it, as an as a sort of larger thing, it's kind of interesting because what liberals are trying to do is they're trying to basically uh, very clearly, in some cases, uh, identify a new 9-11, a new rallying point, a, a new moment of existential terror, which is how liberals have tried to govern, um, I would say, since World War II, but certainly since 9-11. And they're trying and, I think, ultimately failing.
3: I think this, and we... I think we predicted this, if you're we correct. <laughs> I think we did, yeah. Uh, is that they said, so we were asked, like, what do you think the, the Biden administration is going to bring on Afbangabanga? The, the and they're like, well, you know, war wise, probably a lot of humanitarian interventionism. Well, I'm like, I don't think so. Yeah. I don't think they need to do that now no, because they don't they're going to bring the war on terror home. And they've literally said that since they're like, well, we don't have to go to wars abroad guess
4: what? It's your neighbor. Uh, yeah. It's yeah. your, it's your cousin. People have, this is, it's so bad for like so, sociality to use an academic, people are like turning in, like, did you see the Tinder date? Like no. there was like a Tinder date. Jen, did you see this where, where <laughs> someone said they were on January 6th? And then uh, I forget which side of it turned the other person into the FBI. I mean, like, that's just oh terrible. It's, it's, <laughs> that's like, dracon- that's like, like draconian. Tactics.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's just like literally sewing, distrust of, of your of fellow everyone. yeah but also you know what don't fucking tattle
4: yeah well there's that there's <laughs> that element but like just the sowing of distrust amongst the populace it just never leads to good things literally ever that yeah. sort of fostering of like officially induced hatred it's just <laughs> like and the liberals are, you know officially induced hatred is bad but then they just do it in a different way and even
3: well. saying you were there like there were people that were there that didn't store like. Right. The- capital like it's just you're just they
0: you're waited just like, outside they waited guys. outside by the the gallows of <laughs> that that they had set up for <laughs> mike pence or whatever
4: <laughs> there were gallows for pence
0: oh Jesus. danny come oh. on
4: oh.
0: that was that was i, the big, gallows, was I point. <laughs>
4: oh okay sir. <sorry>.
0: yeah <laughs> yeah right. oh so um,
4: they're defending pence
0: well exactly no it was such a weird thing because they were like oh my god there was a noose and you know the their sort of immediate interpretation was like this is a symbol of racial terror Uh, but you know then it was clear like the protesters said and i think there was a sign on the gallows that was like this is for mike pence and then then it was time to defend pence got
4: it yeah (laughs) Yeah. yeah. defend
0: pence against his own administration
4: (laughs) it's just so incoherent i can't I want to get into the psyche of someone who finds that like powerful. You know, like this is a really powerful thing that that yeah. speaks to what it be, is to be an yeah. American. What, are, why but, aggress rest for that?
3: But I think that's it's because people really do feel so powerless. Yes, mm-hmm. and, there's no and they're just, for and, yeah. and they're right. They are they're powerless. right. They're right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. We don't as as we've discussed. <laughs> there's nothing to do voting wise yeah. because the people in charge don't want to do anything about it and even if they did they probably can't cuz they suck at winning
4: yeah and and the whole structure is wrong it just reminds me i don't know if you saw this but Schumer had tweeted like end student loans do you remember that <laughs> he's like biden end student loans it's it's like what are you doing it just it just which which shows if you're going to take it seriously as an indication of something that power lies elsewhere. And then Mm -hmm. the question is, where does power lie? And the answer is usually capital and the unaccountable administrations of the American state. And this is all pop and circumstance and bread and circuses to keep you distracted
2: Mm -hmm. uh,
4: from the, uh, what's really going on. And the problem is like MSNBC and CNN aren't even good at it. The bet, I bet you a lot of them are secretly hoping for another Trump term because like, Oh yeah.
0: Their ratings ratings will go up. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. The Trump bump. I
3: mean, the Trump bump is real. Um, And I think there was also sort of this, the initial, I think they discovered the Trump up by accident. Uh, Because I think the initial thing is that, I mean, during the Obama years, the New York Times had the presidency here. Like he read all the columns. He Mm. did that. And so they're (laughs) like, oh, you know. That's so gross. You know, Senpai noticed me. Uh, And I think what they hated about Trump, (laughs) I think it was less, um, you know, hysteria initially and more histrionics. It was more, well, he doesn't even read us. Like, it's like it was more the fact that it sort of delegitimized him and uh, or de- delegitimized them. It's like literally hurt feelings. It gets them right where right where it hurts. The yeah. credentials,
4: and I think that's really important. That's that's really right on because I think. The particular form that the anti-Trump hysteria took was absolutely related to Obama, which was read as a legitimation of their entire worldview. Yeah. They thought it was the, yeah, yeah. the apotheosis, and it turned out to be what looks like a death knell from 2021. And so, I think it was such a s- stark divide between uh, the ap- the affective, you know, uh, feelings engendered by both that it that it was really significant. Even though I would say uh, on lots of policies, there was significant continuation between Obama and Trump, as there was between Trump and Biden.
0: Mm-hmm. So, uh, David Sirota, friend of the show, uh, also recently published an article, uh, in Jacobin, I think a few weeks ago, that was kind of similar to yours. Uh, he was looking at, you know, just the complete and utter collapse of the Biden agenda and the build back better, uh, act. And he, he asked the same question, are Democrats trying to lose on purpose? And, um, the point of his article, um, again, Sort of like yours wasn't really to like actually get to the truth of the matter, but he was basically saying that Democrats have all but set themselves up for a midterm shellacking. Uh, I am inclined to agree with him, but I want to ask you guys: Is there any way possible that this doesn't happen? No, it's guaranteed. <laughs> yeah. They're going
4: to be they're going to be destroyed. And I think, like, I don't I don't know if this is an indicative of anything, but it does seem like people. On you know young people who when they do turn out really do help the Democratic Party who don't usually turn out in midterms of elections to true, but it does seem that there's a general cynicism amongst what the Democratic Party can do, and though even though young people do vote at lower rates, they're still an important constituency of the Democratic Party. So I think they're going to get creamed even more than like 2010. I think it's going to be a gigantic shellacking, Jen, to to, yeah. to to borrow your phrase. Yeah. I don't see how they could possibly. Maybe if they made it Build Back Best and were inspired oh, by it. Right. Yeah, right.
3: Melania. Oh, God. Build Back Better. So They made it fun of Melania because there's no uh, articles of Slovenian. And she's saying, You'd be best. And they're like, why don't you say be the best? And she's like, that's what I'm saying. Be best. Yeah, but Build Back Better sounds so much sound more good. ESL. Yeah. Doesn't it? <laughs> than be best. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. No, I think I think they're, they're toast. And, again, we're all being a little cheeky here. But we do know they sacrifice some races because they think it's good for for the long term, Um, which means they do sacrifice some areas. And it's not because they don't have the resources. God knows they're extremely bloated organization. Um, But, you know, if they were trying to lose, if I were the Democratic Party and I was trying to lose on purpose, I would do exactly what they're
0: doing. <laughs> right, right. Yeah.
4: Wild. It's really wild. I mean, it's, it's the, the mandate, quote unquote, was so obvious for what I mean, Trump actually gave out money. It's wild. Right. he actually gave out money. It's, it's really strange. I mean, not strange. There's all the reasons we talked about, but in the broad political history of the United States. It's very, very a bunch of weird moves. And there's a broader like uh,
3: overestimation of their own legitimacy. I mean, both the Democrats and the sort of media and you know uh, professional managerial class, whatever. uh, It's a broader overestimation Mm -hmm. of their own sort of legitimacy in the eyes of everyone else. And they're Mm -hmm. like, well, if we call them racist enough, they'll do what we say and they're like oh no uh, we don't like you or care about you that's yeah. why we didn't vote or voted for the other guy because mm-hmm. we don't like you or care about what you think of us right. you can't call us something that we know we're not or maybe they are and they're just like yeah that's i'm a racist yeah <laughs> but it's regardless like they're like i don't understand how that's supposed to affect my habits or mindset whatsoever
4: and then that's precisely right in my opinion and i think it reflects the sort of post-cold war like hyper-partisan sorting um where liberals are in the democratic party and conservatives are in the republican party it's, it makes the message totally ineffective yeah you know and, and that probably relates i would imagine to your
3: enemies of... don't like you oh no yeah mm, like,
4: mm-hmm. it, it, it's it's wild and that probably also relates to do you remember like 10 15 years ago you guys remember about sort of like the the argument that that the Democrats would demographically always dominate. That was like a really strong. Oh yeah. Demography
3: is destiny. Yeah. Yeah. And
4: so I think like, there's a lot of people who are probably situated and formed in that era who unconsciously share a lot of those assumptions um, that really, it probably informs a political messaging. Oh, it's
3: not just demography of like ethnicity or whatever anymore. Uh, Now it's age. They don't seem to understand that children get older. <laughs> They're like, oh, look how left this 16-year-old is. And it's like, how many generations is it going to take before you realize that the kids from Euphoria are going to be working on Wall Street? <laughs> right, <laughs> like, right, I don't know why, why they get it. I think in many ways it's kind of on a psychological level of abdication of responsibility. It's to sort of like oh no they're gonna save us they're gonna stop climate change and it's like you just want to not work yeah Mm -hmm. and that's
4: the weird sort of um uh, putting on a pedestal of of like greta Thunberg. you know Uh, political
3: pedophilia yeah it's
4: like it's like um it's this this notion that the next generation will absolve the sins of the current generation and i think that's why um certain figures have become which is convenient because
3: they will expire before those kids are mad enough to yeah you know be like fuck you you hung us out to dry
4: yeah yeah to be yeah yeah precisely
0: so you know, honestly, this all leads me to something that I specifically wanted to ask you, Danny, because you recently had a Substack post which was <laughs> Kale. Thank you. He's he's got it ready. Uh, the end of mass <laughs> politics. A pretty pretty bleak world outlook, I must say. Uh, the the post. I mean, I, I recommend that everybody reads it. Um, but one of the things you're looking at is whether mass politics is even possible anymore. Um, Let's let's talk about that for a little bit. Uh, what what were you arguing, Danny, and and, and why sure. does why so, does the outlook for mass politics not not so rosy?
4: I didn't necessarily want it to be bleak, but but to my opinion, if you're trying to you know quote unquote think strategically, the, as the science of historical materialism teaches us, you have to be very aware of where power lies in our society. And I, and I just noticed on the left, broadly speaking, um, there seemed to be a, a lack of discussion about why it seems that you know some of the largest protests in American and probably world history didn't result in particular changes? Or why does it seem that there's absolutely no, you know, public opinion is X or Y on Medicare or childcare? It never seems to happen. You know, why does it seem that there's no connection or that the power isn't influenced by the quote unquote public? Um, and one of the reasons, and but, but at the same time, um, to explain that phenomenon in light of the fact that like political discussion. And partisan sorting has become so intense, you know, has become so extreme, both among people who pay attention and then people who don't like um, I was talking to Matt Christman about, you know, these various things He's like, yeah, I could read a headline and then I can know immediately like how this will be interpreted by both sides, Mm -hmm. right, that it, it becomes a sort of passion play. Um, So you have this weird thing where politics doesn't seem to be affected by, you know, the quote-unquote masses, but the masses talk about nothing but politics and they're they're very clear scripts. And so one of the things that I was beginning to think, and Anton Jaeger has done some really interesting work in this vein as well on his discussion of hyperpolitics and a really interesting interview with him on Alpha Bunga Bunga recently. um, What I was starting to think is that maybe what we have is the overlay of institutions like the mass media, the mass political party Um, And particular updates like social media. But really, these major institutions began in the 1920s to address newly politicized publics, you know, newly urbanized publics, people who are able to read, people who are able to be. Part of politics, and you get the rise of new mass political formations like the Democratic Party in the 20s, or the Nazi Party, or fascism. These are all part of the same large phenomenon, which is modernization and urbanization. So, these are still the institutions within with, with which we exist. You know, the mass-based political party, um, the, the the mass media, and this is still the language of politics. You know, people talk about protests going out and making change, mm-hmm. which did happen in the past. But why does there not seem to be? And so I was just, this was more of an exploratory issue. But to me, it seems that what has happened is that power lies totally outside um, any sort of democratic accountability, like relationship to the demos. On one hand, we have capital. um, And I'm sure like people listening to here know that capital is sort of this private thing and it is disconnected. So I'm I'm not going to go into the mechanism of that. But I think what's crucial is that coupled with capital, we've had the accretion over the last 75 years of of a state form. Um, that like literally people who provide services, who make decisions, etc., are either appointed bureaucrats on one hand, the people in the state, they're political appointees. So there's some connection to voting there, but there's this permanent deep state to borrow a phrase um, on one hand. And then there's also this totally unaccountable network of think tanks and NGOs, which all of us here um, are very familiar with, which have absolutely no relationship to democratic accountability. So what you have is this weird public private state overlaid with the discourse and form of mass politics, but, but to which there is no relation. And then just to end, and then you have capital sort of like directing things in various ways there. So that's what I was trying to get at because I think getting the power constellation of society is the basis of any sort of meaningful left-wing strategy, which, you know, if unless you're despairing post-Bernie, you want to build something positive, you want to mm-hmm. build something up. And that was what I was trying to do There.
0: Yeah. Uh, Am- Amber, any additional thoughts on the prospects for mass politics uh, in an era of democratic failure? <laughs>
3: Well, I mean, I would say that I, like, agree with Danny about, like, the state, or, or lack yeah. thereof, of mass politics. But I don't know that, like, prospects are really, like, where either of us go on this. Mainly because there is, like, the, I don't know, I mean, like, shit happens. Like, there yeah. is, there is always, like, this kind of chaos element to things. Yeah, you
4: don't sometimes, know it it's mm-hmm.
3: sometimes it's a pandemic, sometimes it's a Bernie Sanders or whatever. <laughs> You never really know what's going to stick. So, I mean, I'm kind of sitting pretty and seeing what comes down the pipe. Yeah, I mean, it?
4: and that's what and that's what you got to do. I mean, I think it's important. Like, it's funny to be ironic. And, like, obviously despair is, is covered over with humor. But, you to know, despair
3: is to turn your back on God. <laughs> right,
4: exactly. So you, you, you can't let basically what I consider to be a realistic analysis of the situation just lead you into doing nothing. You have to yeah, use yeah. that analysis to build
3: it's yeah. like, this is how now is. Right, right. Um, it's not, yeah. it, and,
4: it, and now will yeah. change. We make history, yeah. but not of our own choosing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so I,
0: I, I, like it's it's... Everything I like that. I like that. It's not, it's not black pilled. It's a different kind of pilled. I don't know what that pill is yet, but it's the pill of like waiting for something batshit to happen, which I It's endorse. a daily vitamin. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. It's that pill. Because <laughs> every day is a different day. Indeed, Um, but I mean, again,
3: I think to me, the only thing I would emphasize is that institutions and class-based institutions are going to be the only way out of this. But the the form that that would take, or whatever, what would you know, create the conditions where they could form
4: again, isn't clear to me at all. It's actually kind of exciting, right? Because if if Mm. if you do think like that, that ultimately a lot of these things need to come from a class-based politics. Um, or politics significantly inflected with with class or however you want to phrase it then that raises interesting questions like how does one organize in a in a in, a, in, a, in an era where capital has successfully reshaped labor relations where people mm-hmm. are working multiple jobs, where unionization is at, at a very low moment? it just means we have to be more creative and mm-hmm. we have to you know develop new models for the actual post post industrial economy that we're working with so in some sense, this is actually an exciting time because we're not using the old sort of framework that it's very clear in my opinion that we need to adopt a new understanding of how to do that total sighted. I mean I would say
3: too like back on that because we don't have manufacturing and sort of the conditions for you know mass labor that are guess what I don't work we don't make the thing anymore. Um, I am I'm not sure of this and I go back and forth but I really do think any investment in domestic Infrastructure and manufacturing mm-hmm. would be the thing. I actually think it's going, it's or it's likely that stuff, yeah. it, it happens the same way it happened the first time. Right. <laughs> um, but it, that would require another industrial revolution. But there might be conditions where that's necessary. I mean, especially with like supply chain shit fucked up, and it's becoming clear and clear that maybe we shouldn't get everything from somewhere else, right?
4: And, I mean, just in terms of pure shipping, I mean, if we're, if we're going to take any sort of like climate arrest, or, and climate's like a big thing, and I, I don't want to catastrophize, but you probably should be flying less, or at least we as a species should be flying less. So it turns out there are costs to, yeah. you know, rapacious capitalism, extraction and shipping things all over the world. So this actually presents patience, opportunities. But
3: the, yeah, but the yeah. fact is, that's not really the major issue. The issue is that like, you know, you... You get paper from Malaysia instead of Canada, where there's the same so renewable resource. So, to, to take to
4: take an example, I like to use in the Pacific Northwest uh, in the '60s, what happened? They used to fell lumber and they used to process it in the Pacific Northwest, but in the '60s, they found that it was actually cheaper to ship to Japan, process it, and then ship back. Wow. Right. So, there's lots of things like that that would like are in the you know that that are forgotten that might actually make more sense given what we now know about climate change and Mm -hmm. and what we would want to do for a national domestic economy
3: although that that doesn't necessarily benefit capital i think the one the one (laughs) possible opportunity of the pandemic is that they're like oh shit we can't keep doing this because all our stuff is over there Mm -hmm. we need to have a backup plan in case this happens again maybe we actually have to risk the possibility of the workers unionizing again by having domestic manufacturing because like like my mom was trying to uh, paint the house and she's like there's a paint shortage and I'm like I don't even know I don't even know where we get paint but apparently it's not here or yeah, one of the from all over the right? it's yeah. probably like 18 18- yeah. Places
4: around the world, and if
3: people can't buy their paint, house house capital isn't going to keep
4: running. And this is, I I actually also think an internationalist thing for people who might critique us for being like so focused on the national. If you actually weigh ways- um, remove that sort of opportunity from uh, foreign economies i think you'll see more organization there and, and more worker justice there as well Well, you could see like the
3: the actual development of manufacturing that a place like mexico has been trying to do for years <laughs> and years but we've undermined so Which, we can have could like a them. yeah because we have a, a a mobile third world desperate workforce
4: yeah and it, it's all related to imperialism as, as we're suggesting
0: well, on that note, uh, I think we are just about What's to that? wrap up here, <laughs> but, um, I realized when you guys came on, I literally just introduced you as my LA friends. Um, and <laughs> you're, you're, you're far more credential than that. So I'm just going to take a minute to say that Amber, of course, is a writer and a co-host of Chapo Trap House. Danny Bessner, um, Few may know, is a professor at the University of Washington, uh, a contributing editor at Jacobin, co host of the podcast American Prestige, and I happen to know a grunge aficionado. So there you go. <laughs> um, do either of you should have do any... an episode
4: on the Riot Girls?
0: I mean, any you name it, anytime. <laughs> Um, are there any projects that you guys want to shout out really quickly? Because Amber, I know, is working on a book. I don't know if that's coming out soon. Neither does she. Guess America. what? The
3: supply chain is <laughs> affecting a lot of things. There you go. <laughs> um, yeah, no, it's, it's supposed to come out. So but I don't know when the date is now. I, I should ask. Um,
0: Danny, any so, supply yeah, chain fuck-ups for that... you? <laughs> huh? Are there any supply chain fuck-ups for Danny?
4: Oh, no, no, no. Okay. Uh, just listen to the podcast yeah (laughs) american prestige
0: yeah yeah um but amber amber can you say a little bit about your book though uh because i think a lot of people are interested um is is it a memoir
3: uh yeah it's memoiristic essay so it's um it's about here my adventures through politics and things i've learned and all the whatever but i think a lot of it is basically like From my sort of strange perspective of coming from, you know, working class background in middle America and then ending up in this sort of like, um, like left political world as it emerged, um, or rather joining it before it existed. and, And then like, kind of we're like, oh, maybe there's about to be politics. And then it all went tits up. But, uh, <laughs> but then it's a sort of a, a what next thing. So I don't know. I go through, I go through Indiana. I go through, um, I go through like early DSA when it was nothing. I go through Bernie one and Bernie two. Hmm. Um, and I go through sort of pandemic and sort of all the things that are thrown together. And, I'm, you know, I talk about like Chopo and like the fact that this podcast even has a like a a following because there was, yeah, because there was, there was like a a demand for, well, it's because Felix does funny voices, but, (laughs) um, but it's like, it's because there is a a demand for people talking sort of frankly about politics outside of what we are told our options are. Um, But yeah, it's sort of uh, reflective, but hopefully funny and a a humorist at heart. Humor with the U, which, as my friend Nick says, means it's humor that no one actually laughs at.
0: But. <laughs> yeah, the British kind. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. Well, uh, everybody, obviously, check out all their shit. Uh, hopefully, we'll have you guys back on the show in no time. Um, thanks for being here. And uh, till next time. Hi. Thanks for having us. All right. Well. You know, Amber and Danny, a fun time as usual. Uh, We are about to close out here, but I just want to mention uh, because weekends is not happening anymore, uh, I know that something they used to do was have young Kale Brooks uh, at the end of the show to answer some questions. I don't think we'll be doing that this time, uh, but let us know in the chat if you want Kale to come on once in a while and answer your questions about Marxist theory. That's where he really shines. And if you guys want it, I'm going to make him do it. I don't know what to say, Kale. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. The, maybe the people but, want it
2: yeah I mean I guess if the people want it I, I kind of have to do it um, yeah so you know if you guys have questions I don't Post know if, them to kale yeah, yeah I don't know why you would ask me but i'll I'll try my best that's, they, that's... they asked
0: you they asked you every weekend and hopefully some of them have migrated here to the weekday um again <laughs> I'm gonna make you do it
2: okay well you have to then answer some of the questions too because We'll see. Yeah. I got to make sure that I'm not just making this up.
0: All right. Well, um, guys, thank you for tuning in. Uh, again, you know, uh, our, our, our co-hosts of past, we're hoping to bring back, uh, as much as possible in the future. Uh, Kale and I are here because we, uh, we, we don't have like three other jobs. We're just dirtbags who work for Jacobin. So you're stuck with us. Um, but, but, I promise there'll be, um, I think, a lot of great interviews to come. Again, we'll be here every Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern. Um, and please hit like and subscribe. I always forget to say that, yeah, but
2: please do. Hit those buttons they're right in front of you right now. It's probably a really easy thing for you to do. And then you can get more of us. And and we really appreciate it. We probably appreciate yes. it more than you appreciate us, honestly. But. <laughs> Uh, there you go lot lot coming up in this year I know we're starting starting the year off on January 12th <laughs> a little <laughs> not not right out the gate but uh, stay tuned I think I think best year yet you know
0: yeah all right thanks for watching and we will see you next week
2: bye.